Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello everyone and welcome to this month's edition of Dr. Dale on Quail. If you're a fan of blue quail or scaled quail, have we got a program for you today. With us is Dr. Dale Rollins. Hello Dale. Hey Gary. Tell us about blue quail, kind of uh, maybe the mo not most popular quail species in the public's mind, but an awfully popular species for those that appreciate it. They're kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of the quail world. Uh, they just don't get that much respect. Uh, personally, I love them. Uh, by the end of this podcast, you're going to appreciate them a lot better if you're a typical uh, Bob White hunter. But blues are one of the four species of quail we have in Texas. Texas is one of only three states that has four species. Bob Whites, blue quail, scale quail, we call them blues. Gambles quail along the Rio Grande out in the Trans-Pecos and Montezuma quail that we'll find out in the Davis Mountains. But the blue quail is our second most popular species. It occurs roughly west of the 100th meridian or roughly west of Highway 83 in, in uh, Texas. Uh, that line is not static. After the drought of the 50s, blue quail populations erupted. El Reno, Oklahoma is one of the suburbs of Oklahoma City. Blue quail were reported as far northeast as really? El Reno, Oklahoma in 1959. And uh, if we get into a series of wet years, the blue quail will kind of recede westward and the bob whites will expand westward. If we get into a series of dry years, the, the blues kind of encroach a little bit further east as, as do the bob whites. Before about 1988, I, I did my master's thesis on bob white and blue quail there in southwestern Oklahoma. So again, they've always been a a big part of any quail hunting plans that I had, I kind of considered them drought insurance. 1984, you wouldn't have thought there was a bob white left anywhere after the drought and card winter of 1983, but we still had blue quail. Something happened, and again, where I hunted in Oklahoma, it wasn't on 10,000 acre ranches, it was on 40 acre tracks and 80 acre tracks, and I had access to basically anywhere I wanted to go, and so me and my buddy Coondog, we knew wherever covey of blue quail was in Southern Harmon County, and there's one place called Sprout's Place, that uh, had a blue bush on a, a lope bush. And if you went there between 10 o'clock in the morning and four o'clock in the afternoon, there was gonna be 25 blue quail sitting in there. We knew it. And they were there Thanksgiving of 1988, December, Christmas, they weren't there. Gone. Gone. And it turns out as I did more digging, that blue quail had disappeared over most of their former range in the Rolling Plains. That basically extended as far west as the Pecos River something of great magnitude impacted the blue quail. And as we've spoke before, blue quail are the more hardy of the two birds. But for whatever reason, something knocked the bottom out of the blue quail. That was one of the things, and about a month later, I was down in Crockett County near Ozona on a quail hunt. We shot like 13 birds that day. Eight of them, as we breasted them out, their breasts looked like pickle loaf. Hmm. We didn't think much about it, discarded them as being inedible, and didn't think much more about it. Again, that was when I realized that the blue quail population were literally vaporizing before our eyes, but I didn't know any better. I'd been taught that disease wasn't an issue in quail management. Later, I showed that to some of my colleagues, and they said that type of uh, muscle that looked like pickle loaf was indicative of a uh, bacterial infection. Oh. All I had was color slides to prove it. We didn't have any tissue samples. But that always had my antennae up from that point on about about uh, disease as a possible player in, in quail. But our, quail, our blue quail are gonna occur in the Western Rolling Plains, 
probably reached their highs in the Trans-Pecos, also up in the High Plains, down in the South Texas Plains, and the Western Edwards Plateau. Now, a point of note, the blue quail they have in South Texas is called the chestnut-bellied scale quail. That's a different subspecies than we have throughout most of Texas. The one we have over most of West Texas is called the Arizona scale quail. Uh, some minor differences in habitat um, preferences and that kind of thing. Growing up in Oklahoma, you, as you mentioned, you were around blue quail a lot. Some great memories there and really probably shaped some of your opinions about blue quail because of that. Absolutely. Like I said, uh, growing up where I did, uh, with a 22, we hunted basically year-round. And if it wasn't jackrabbits or prairie dogs, uh, you know, we were always hunting for something. And me and coon dog were out there one time. I could show you with GPS precision. We were probably 14 at the time. A blue quail flushed up and came over us. Coon dog shot a Remington Fieldmaster 22 pump, and he nailed that bird on the wing. Out of season, granted, but he nailed it. I'll never forget that shot. Statute of limitations. Statute of limitations or ignorance of youth or whatever. I don't know. Um... We had certain roads up there in certain places. I mentioned Sprouts Place and the, the magical loke bush it had on it. Well, we had a two-mile stretch of dirt road. Two miles without section lines is pretty uncommon in Oklahoma. Basically, everything's cut up on the section line. But there was a two-mile stretch that we called Pot Shot Road. Now, I don't advocate shooting birds on the ground, pot shots. It happens a lot, especially with blue quail. And when you're 13, 14, it happens a lot more during that time because you're still mad at quail. But we had that road, again, that was, we could drive, if we were the first one down Pot Shot Road on Saturday morning, we could count on seeing five date coverage of quail on that two miles, line, two miles of road and uh, half of those being blue quail. So they've always, like I said, held a special place in my heart and I begin to appreciate them as drought insurance. So when it gets too dry for Bob Whites, chances are you still have some blue quail. We sit here today at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch near Roby. And uh, you do have a lot of research underway regarding blue quail here at the ranch. It's not just about Bob Whites. That's right. When we took over the property in 2006, we had six coveys of blue quail that we could count. By 2010, we didn't think we had any. Uh, just what happened to them, we couldn't say at the time, but they, they, they vanished. And again, they were very uncommon in really any of this country, which historically, pre-1988, had a lot of blue quail. So in, 19, in 2013, we thought, well, we're going to try to translocate some wild blues back in here just to see if they'll take, take hold, take root. We put 13 birds in here in uh, 2013, and then we brought in 86 in 2014. Uh, in 2016, we were taking photographs. So I've got a photo, game camera photograph of a covey of blue quail with 54 birds in it. They did very well. We put them back in the locations on the ranch where we had last seen them at, so we said, that's our best blue quail habitat. They flourished very well. Now, four years later, our numbers have dwindled again quite a bit. I'd be surprised in 2019 if they make up any more than 5% of our population. Uh, so they're not magical, and uh, we continue to follow them uh, because, again, there's a lot more people appreciate blue quail now than they did 20 years ago. We want to be able to have some management information that's applicable to those critters. Some of your research uh, relating to blue quail uh, is very similar to some of the research on your bobwhites, talking about your eye worms, uh, things that may be impacting their physiology. Well, again, some of this stuff, Gary, we just don't know. But we're not afraid to ask the question, I wonder, what if? Okay, never stop asking what if, as, as somebody once said. And so we've been doing all this work on the eye worms in bobwhite quail. Well, the blue quail get eye worms too. Now, do they have the same tolerance for eye worms as bobwhites do? I don't know. Maybe that's part of the reason our blue quail are, are beginning to kind of fade out here. 
We have been at the epicenter of the eye worm epidemic in the Rolling Plains. We have the highest numbers, some of the highest numbers right here in Fisher County that we've seen anywhere throughout the Rolling Plains. Maybe the blue quail are less tolerant of that. Speculation on my part. Um, we do know that as we go west, and we've picked up blue quail from many counties throughout West Texas to look at them for eye worms and sequel worms. As we move west, the, the incidence of eye worms and sequel worms, these gut worms, they're going to drop off. In other words, if we're used to seeing 25 eye worms and 300 sequel worms at quail here on the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, if we move 100 miles west of here, it'll probably be an incidence of maybe 20% of the quail have them and an average abundance of maybe only five or six worms. Hmm. So as you move to more arid extremes, you have fewer of these parasites available. Um, exactly what the mechanism of that is probably related to the intermediate host and so forth. We don't understand all that right now. But if you have blue quail, and if you're hunting blue quail, not only are we doing some research on that, but I'm on three master's students committees at Sol Ross State University that uh, just started a blue quail parasitology study. So we'd like to see your blue quail. We'd like to get the heads, ideally the total body, so those students can use those for their data set. A lot of people look forward to your quail forecast every year, Dr. Dale. Uh, they're interested in what your prognostication is for bob whites, but you do the same for blue quail. You have folks helping you get a pulse of the blue quail that's out in the country. And for the most part, that pulse is a little bit better for, for blue quail this year than it is for bob whites. Uh, again, once we get uh, west of a line roughly from Big Lake to Big Spring, and I don't have a good pulse for the High Plains. I didn't get many reports from up in there. But some of that country, the Western Permian Basin, Crane, Upton, Ector County, some of those counties out there, I'm getting some uh, seven pluses and eights. That's, some that kind of, that's really good, Gary, because I have a quail lease in Crane County. So I'm <laughs> anxious. Personal now. I'm anxious in trying to ground truth those uh, forecasts. And if they ain't fairly close, I'm going to cut those people from my forecasting line from this point on. But <laughs> but the numbers right now look uh, look considerably better for blue quail, at least in West Texas, than they are for bobs. Take a step back. Help us understand, uh, for those that may not be as familiar with the blue quail but know the bobs, um, What's different? What's the same? Uh, how do they compare? Okay. First of all, the blue quail will be about a half ounce larger than the bob whites. You see that crest on the top knot on a blue quail, and you think they're quite a bit larger. You have the two birds, both of them in your hand. That blue may maybe be, again, a half ounce larger than a bob white. If you just have the breast there in the frying pan, you're not going to know the difference. Same size. Their ranges overlap. Now, technically, we say that their ranges uh, that the species are sympatric. It just means that they have overlapping distributions. And it was that reason that allowed me for my master's thesis back in 79 and 80 because I had both bob whites and blue quail there in Harmon County, Oklahoma. So I did the comparative ecology of those two critters. They got essentially the same diets. They're occurring in the same piece of, on the same ground. Now the blues are probably going to select for a little rougher country within this thousand acres. You're going to have some shallow sites, some rocky sites, some overgrazed sites. That's going to be a little bit more favorable toward the blue quail and a little bit less favorable toward the bob whites. I can drive down the road in, in St. Patrick country. I can look at the grazing pressure and say, that's probably going to be more blues. That's probably going to be more bob whites just by looking at the cover. Uh, some of the work that we've done again with the, with the parasites, so the, the blue quail have fewer sequel worms and eye worms. They, uh, again, they just live in tougher country. As I've mentioned some point in time before, the blue quail are kind of like Spanish goats. 
the Bob Whites are more like Angora goats for those of you from goat producing regions of the state. The, the blue quail are just a little bit more hardy. Val Lehman, who was the biologist for the King Ranch, wrote a book called Bob Whites in the Rio Grande Plains of Texas. He had a chapter on blue quail in, in the first sentence says, blue quail are somewhat more intelligent than Bob Whites. <laughs> I'd say amen. They're, they're certainly less uh, vulnerable to harvest because they're a wilder bird to flush. There is no gentleman Bob White in the blue quail's vernacular, so they're going to run. They're going to frustrate a lot of dogs and so forth. Not to say they're not a great sporting game bird, but uh, they frustrate a lot of people, especially from points east uh, that come out here to Texas to hunt. And they do run. They do run. But I tell people that Bob Whites, I mean, I'm sorry, blue quail are a product of their environment. And if you live in Fort Stockton, Texas, out there where the annual rainfall is 10 inches a year, you don't have a whole lot to hide in kind of thing. So they're going to run. If you've got cover that will allow them to act more like Bob Whites, they can act more like Bob Whites. And there are some strategies. If you can bust that cubby up, uh, you can have some incredible dog hunting. But if they stay as a unit, if they stay as 25 birds, put your track shoes on. I worked for several years uh, with a rancher out at uh, Fort Stockton. His name is Sherman Hammond, and I learned a lot from him. And uh, on Sherman Hammond's headstone, got a pair of blue quail. Oh, I'll, I'll never forget that. But uh, if you've ever chased blue quail across those hard scrabble hills in West Texas, the sound you hear them make occasionally is called the chucker cargos. And some, sometimes in the books you see it spelled out as chucker, chucker, or chipcher, chipcher. I say they're really saying sucker, sucker. <laughs> if you're going to chase them up a hill, they're going to win every time kind of thing. <laughs> you got to appreciate the blues. Again, they don't they don't boom quite as well as Bob Watts doing great times, but they don't bust nearly as badly. So, again, there's just something about them that you, you got to appreciate about that. And occasionally, and this is kind of interesting, You'll have the two species hybridized. That's right. And a cross between a bob white and blue quail is called a blob. A blob. And uh, I've heard of blobs. Uh, again, I've been hunting quail almost 50 years. 2017, I shot my first blob ever on my lease in Howard County out there. And it's it looks like a dirty-faced bob white. Doesn't have much of a crest. Sometimes they have a little bit of a crest. But uh, it's pretty obvious when you get in one hand that you've got something here other than just a traditional bob white. Now, there's a gentleman here in Fisher County by the name of Paul Melton who serves on as the chairman of our advisory committee. Paul, I call him the king of the blobs because over his hunting career, he's killed like 13 blobs really? in his career. What's no, unique? What's and, different? Well, Paul never misses a shot for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> that may be part of it. And if there seems to be an area that has a higher incidence of blobs, it, it would be from about Big Spring up to about Paducah. Just why, I don't know. But historically, as you find records of blobs, you'll find Motley County, you'll find Cottle County, some of those counties that's popping up. So for whatever reason, uh, we don't always know if it is it the Bob White rooster or the blue quail rooster mm -hmm. and the other one hen. Mm -hmm. uh, both crosses can occur if the, if the birds are in captivity. And the, the offspring are mules. They're sterile hybrids, so they do not reproduce. Uh, I tend to think that it's more of the Bob White rooster and the blue quail hen, okay. but we don't have any records on that. From a management standpoint, uh, do you approach each species differently? As a rule, yes. We generally don't talk about intensive management. We want to talk about intensive bob whites. We're talking about supplemental feeding. We're talking about water development, ad libitum kind of things. In blue quail, it's typically more extensive. Watch your grazing management. Watch your brush control. 
Maybe let your water holes overflow just a little bit, but we're generally not talking about nearly the intensity of management as we are with the Bob Whites. There are exceptions to that. I've been on some ranches. Uh, I won't mention the name of the, but in southeastern New Mexico, a gentleman holds a lot of property in New Mexico. Uh, they do a lot of supplemental feeding and water development, like a lot of quail out there kind of thing. So I'm not to the point to say, to recommend it. Uh, supplemental feeding is expensive, but if you can afford to do it and want to do it, then do it. It works. Things such as their nesting habitat, uh, their uh, quail houses, as you call them, is that different than what Bob White pursued? Generally not. Uh, the, uh, the same blueprint, um, typically a good loke bush, if you got one in West Texas or a cat claw acacia, that's where blue quail are going to be. But blue quail are pretty innovative in some of the places that they do call home. If many ranches will have a junk pile or a wire pile where they've rolled up old net wire fence over the years and they've got it all... Uh, piled up out there. That's not unusual for a blue for a covey of blue quail to call that kind of site a home site kind of thing. So they can take advantage if you get on up into the uh, plains, Colorado, and so forth. An old abandoned piece of farm equipment, maybe all they need to call that a, a covey headquarters kind of thing. So they make the best of what they got. As far as uh, thinking about. Uh are they a, a product of their environment more than the Bob White, or are they, as you said, more hardy? They're a survivor. They will make do with what they have? Well, again, they, they live in a harsher environment. Uh, when you live in country that typically receives less than 12, 13, 14 inches of rainfall, you got to be adaptable. you got to be adapted to that semi-arid slash arid environment, and blue quail are. Uh, as you move further west, blue quail are kind of a bird of the Chihuahuan Desert. If we continue to move a little further west into the Sonoran Desert, we lose the blue quail and the Gamble's quail pick up the baton out there. So they've evolved in you know in certain ecoregions and so forth that they're adapted to fairly well. We just try to take wherever they're at. As a student of quail, we say, where are they occurring at? And if I could, I'd want to cut and paste this. If I've got blue quail here, but I don't have them over here, as a student, I say, what's the pattern? What's missing? And again, could I figuratively cut and paste that across the landscape? And that's where sometimes uh, planting things like four-wing saltbush as a type of uh, loafing cover or putting a supplemental feeding or water, those kinds of things. Out of the ranch we worked there in the southeastern New Mexico, their primary nesting site was Spanish dagger, hmm. which is the tall yucca-looking plant. And those quail would go, they would typically burrow under that. They'd find a rat hole or something underneath one of those daggers, and that's where they'd be up under nesting. So, again, adaptable, you know, make the best of what you got kind of thing. I want to real quickly talk about uh, water because water is something that when most people have hunted blue quail in an unfamiliar landscape, they're going to focus on a windmill. They're going to say, we're going to park the Jeep here at this windmill, and then we'll begin to make some circles out around that. Odds are they're going to find quail right around that water. So immediately they say, find water, you'll find quail. Uh, certainly some truth to that. It's not always the water per se that they're after. If you've got a windmill and you've got, you're going to have increased uh, soil disturbance by the livestock or whatever, so you're probably growing things like cowpin daisy, buffalo burr, some other plants that are also making that side attractive to them for quail. But blue quail can be uh, aided by supplemental water and I've seen people go to great extremes trying to pipe water and so forth, use sprinklers to make green spots, lots of different ways to be innovative like that, but probably one of the, the best ways that I've found to do it that a landowner can do without too much angst 
and again, I go back to my mentor, Sherman Hammond, out there in Pecos County, Texas, Fort Stockton. And Mr. Hammond, he had water troughs, concrete water troughs for his cattle operation, uh, various places across the ranch. And the first time I was with him, I said, Mr. Hammond, if you just overflow those water troughs a little bit and put some water on the ground, those quail would typically use it more. Most types of wildlife don't want to drink from a trough. They'd rather drink at ground level. And he set me straight pretty quick. He said, no rancher can go into the coffee shop and say that he's intentionally overflowing a water trough and hold up his head amongst his peers. They'll laugh him out of the cafe. So Mr. Hammond's way of tackling that was, you kept, imagine if, if this table were a water trough okay. on the Hammond Ranch, mm-hmm. it would be brimful. You literally couldn't put a tablespoon more water in it without a tablespoon of water overflowing. Now, whenever the wind blows at Fort Stockton, Texas, what happens? You get some water sloshed over, and as a result, you get a little wet spot out here on the ground. Mr. Hammond said, that wasn't me that did that. That was the act of God that put that water on the ground. But now I can go in, I put water on the ground for my quail, but I can still hold my head up among my peers. <laughs> so sometimes the image is important like that. So all of our water troughs here at the Research Ranch, we try to keep them brimful with the knowledge that they're going to overflow, create a little green spot. Little green spots attract little green bugs. Little green bugs and moisture climates are going to attract those quail. One thing, Gary, you and I were talking today about was the soil surface temperature. Yes. On a hot day like in August, it may be 135 degrees. If you take a thermometer and put it on bare soil, 135 degrees. On one of those little moist soil areas like that, it'd be 88 degrees. Almost a 40 degree difference. And so there's a tremendous difference in microclimate. And I don't know if that grows any more quail, but I'd like to think if we can make happy quail, we're making more quail. And Mr. Hammond was a big proponent of spreader dams as well. Exactly. Yeah, he was, Sherman was a water miser. His philosophy was, I want to keep every inch of rain that falls on my property and every inch that my upstream neighbor gives me. So after every two-inch rain, he'd be driving around the perimeter of his ranch, see if he was losing any water downstream. If he was, there'd be a berm up there when you came back next time. That ain't a bad philosophy to have when you live in the desert. How are we going to hunt blue quail? What are we going to do differently? Uh, How are we going to look, find, uh, pursue those birds during hunting season? Well, you're going to be prepared especially if you're not familiar with blue quail, you're going to be frustrated. Your dogs are going to be frustrated because the dogs are going to come up, smell, point, false point, no, no birds. Bird, you release the dog, they move up further, point, move up there with anticipation, no birds. So the birds are running. They're just notorious for running. Again, most of the time they're in a hard scrabble kind of a habitat that running is a beneficial aspect of getting away from you. And as I told you, a layman once said that they're just somewhat more intelligent than the Bob Whites are. So, so they know how to frustrate. This ain't their first rodeo kind of thing. And so pointy dogs typically are frustrated. Many times people don't even hunt them. I mean, they do it West Texas style, uh, which basically means run and gun. I'm not advocating this, but if there are listeners here that have hunted blue quail, they've probably been in the back of a Jeep or whatever, just trying to run them down and shoot them on the ground. Perfectly legal in Texas. You almost, if you've ever invited on one of those hunts, it's kind of when in Rome, do as the Romans do. But as you grow older, uh, you say, eh, that ain't the way I want to hunt blue quail. And so then again, you try to develop techniques to where you can still use your pointing dogs. And there are a couple of things. Uh, for example, if you're up in the high plains or the rolling plains and you get about a four inch fresh snow, 
get out there that next day. You can have some incredible blue quail hunting after when the snow is fresh. Now, two days later, when it's crusted over, they're running on top of it just like ever. But that first day, they can't run on it, and so they're buried up. They stay put. Uh, I mean, they, some great hunts. You can uh, get them scattered in good grass cover. If there's good grass cover available, oh, I had an incredible quail hunt out in Jeff Davis County. Cold day, about 15 degrees, and those birds were in some really good cover. We just had a great pointing dog expedition. And then my buddy, Steve Sherrod, on tip of the hat to him in San Angelo, he's kind of where he's got some of my better dogs, too. And so he developed, I'm giving him credit for it, what I call Steve Sherrod's bass ackwards approach to hunting blue quail. Typically, you're hunting into the wind. You're taking your dogs into the wind so they have maximum opportunity to detect that scent cone of the quail. Steve has turned that around to where you hunt downwind. So now the wind's blowing out of this direction, and we're going that direction, which you'd think, well, that's putting a terrible disadvantage of the dogs. The dogs are running out there, and all of a sudden, they catch wind of something behind them, and they wheel back around. You're over here. Now you've got them caught in a pincher I see. kind of a thing. And so that's proved to be a pretty effective technique, uh, and I'll give credit to Steve, uh, but it seems to work. So I would encourage blue quail hunters that, again, have, are frustrated by their dog's inability to point blue quail to try that. Another thing is, again, after you've broken that covey up, but you got to break them up. Some people will do this with a Jeep or a dune buggy and then get their dogs out to where they can be pointing singles. It's hard to get a covey rise point on blue quail, but if you get them scattered, you can have some great work on the singles like that. And then there's some, uh, again, some less conventional ways, uh, hunting from Jeeps or dune buggies, uh, especially in the Midland area, the, the technique that that I was introduced to, they called it the Midland Loop, or surround and pound. <laughs> and they used three Jeeps or three dune buggies or whatever, and they're just going across the landscape until a covey of blue quail flushes, and then somebody will honk one of those air horns, make the other two buggies realize that a covey has flushed. They circle them. They drop people off. They have nine people available, and they drop them off like numbers on the clock dial. So now you have surrounded a covey of blue quail. You turn a flushing dog loose, okay. a Labrador or English Cocker, something like that, and that dog goes in and flushes the blue quail out. And so as they fly over you then, and the rule is, this sounds dangerous, and it could be, but if you're hunting with people you know and you follow the rules, it's okay. You don't shoot unless you have blue sky. And if you have blue sky, and again, those birds are flying out over you like that, yes. they're flushing typically two or three at a time, it is a great way to bag blue quail. And I will go as far as say as somebody that's a little bit more conventional quail hunter, after a time period, you, you, that gimmick, you feel sorry for those blue quail because uh, it's, it's highly effective, but not, it's not for everybody. Let's put it like that. Have you had any success, Dr. Dale, uh, translocating blue quail, taking them from one area to another and, and seeing any positive results? We ha we've, had mixed, we've had a mixed bag. Uh, we did this uh, at the research ranch here in 2013-14. Saw an incredible response. Two years later, man, we had several hundred blue quail available on the ranch. We think all those came from that initial transplant that we did. And we're doing DNA analysis on the feathers right now so we can prove to our peers that that's indeed were their parents. But we've tried it at a couple of other locations. We tried it up on the Matador WMA, uh, again, which had blue quail on it before 1988. Not a one of them, say, to our knowledge, uh, 
they shot 10,000 quail on the matador in the next area and no blues were in the bag. So we didn't have any success there for whatever reason. We tried it again 60 miles east of there. We initially had success, but I don't think we've sustained the population. In order for us to say it works, we got to say that we translocated the birds here and we have a viable population after some given time, say five years. So we're still trying to find out exactly where that tool is going to work in our toolbox for blue quail. What are the seasons for blue quail? When does Texas uh, usually allow hunting of blue quail? Same season as Bob White's. So uh, first Saturday in November to the last Sunday in, in uh, February is the season. And again, in a year like this year where our Bob White numbers are down, but our blue quail numbers are up, if you got friends or opportunities to hunt blue quail, I'd encourage you to put a little bit more emphasis, a little more pressure, if you will. If you just got to go out there and shoot quail this year, spend your time with those blue quail. You're going to get more exercise because you're going to be running after them. Now, I'm kind of lamed up here after my little stint with this uh, crippling disease. So I've been telling people, yeah, I'll take the blue quail hunt. I'll block and you, you'll be able to run them through to me kind of thing. <laughs> it's a different kind of hunting. Uh, just like a lot, you know, every type of hunting can be unique and can be a trophy, and blue quail are indeed trophy quail. Outstanding. Thank you, Dr. Rollins. We appreciate your good words and good insights. We hope you appreciate what is an underappreciated trophy, blue quail in Texas. That's today's Dr. Dale on quail. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. Join us next month as we continue to talk about issues important to quail in Texas. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.